new government regulations, which were created to protect employees, are actually hurting them. It's regulation after regulation. You know, until the government understands that they have to create an environment suitable for us to keep growing, we're going to stay in this recession a long time. The federal government has blocked efforts to expand the ride-sharing. The owners say the restaurant has succumbed to the crush of government regulations. We have seen an unprecedented explosion of new regulatory activity. $1.8 trillion. That's how much business and bus companies to close. I think there are outdated regulations that need to be changed. There is red tape that needs to be cut. The regulations are... There's a regulation that doesn't make any sense. Why do you keep... Is this really the best we can do? This is Free Lunch, the podcast of the Federalist Society's Regulatory Transparency Project. All expressions of opinion on this podcast are those of the speakers. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to episode 13 of the Free Lunch podcast for the Federalist Society's Regulatory Transparency Project. We're glad you're here, but we also want you at our website, regproject.org, regproject.org. We're constantly sharing content such as papers, videos, and podcasts. So go take a look, and while you're there, subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My name is Devin Westhill. I'm the director of the RTP and the host of the Free Lunch Podcast. This Free Lunch Podcast episode will explore the Wassenauer Arrangement, which regulates the international exportation of certain software, hardware, and other technologies. Some argue that these controls are necessary to protect activists and opposition figures from monitoring by authoritarian governments around the world and to also keep potentially dangerous technology out of the hands of malicious hackers. Others say, not so fast. Questioning the breadth and effectiveness of these controls and asserting that such controls are doing more harm than good. So, the question for today is, should software be regulated like a military weapon? Here to help us evaluate that question are our three guests, Stuart Baker, Alan Cohn, and Matthew Hyman. Briefly, Stewart is a partner at Steptoe & Johnson, practicing in the areas of international trade, worldwide arbitration, appellate litigation, telecom, internet, and media, and others. Stewart has also held a number of government posts, his most recent being the Department of Homeland Security's first Assistant Secretary for Policy. Alan is of counsel at Steptoe & Johnson, where he advises clients from a, in a, uh, from a range of industries on cybersecurity, blockchain, and distributed ledger technology issues and other national security emerging tech issues. Allen was previously the Assistant Secretary for Strategy Planning, Analysis, and Risk, and second in charge overall of the Department of Homeland Security's Office of Policy. Finally, Matthew is Vice President, Corporate Secretary, and Associate General Counsel at Johnson Controls, which he joined in 2016 as a result of the merger with Tyco International. Matthew's held numerous positions at Tyco, over nearly a decade with the company, and before that, he also served as a lawyer with the National Security Division at the U.S. Department of Justice. After today's call, if you're interested in learning more about any or all of our featured speakers, you can find more information at regproject.org under our Cyber and Privacy Working Group page, the group within which both Matthew and Stuart serve as members. All righty. In just a moment, I'll turn the call over to Matthew, who will moderate our discussion. Before I do, though, I remind everyone that the Federal Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy initiatives, and therefore all expressions of opinion on free lunch podcasts are those of our future speakers. Additionally, our speakers have agreed, as usual, to take questions after their remarks. So prior to the start of the question and answer period, please be prepared with any questions that you might have about topics related to the Wassenauer International Regulatory Controls. Okay. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us today. Matthew, uh, the floor is all yours. Thanks, Devin, and thanks to Stuart and Alan for joining the conversation today. Before we get into the discussion, I would be remiss if I did not make one further plug for regproject.org. There is a uh, section under regproject.org related to cyber and privacy. As Devin mentioned, that's the working group that Stuart and I both participate in. So if you're interested in this topic, there is material there. Uh, related to cyber and privacy, and there is an outstanding white paper there, if I do say so myself, entitled Regulators in Siberia, C-Y-B-E-R-I-A, which covers the Wassenaar topic along with a number of others. So if you're interested in how regulations are affecting the Internet and innovation economy, uh, I would encourage you to check that paper out. So without any further ado, I'd like to begin with uh, a framing question uh, that will helpfully, hopefully guide the rest of our conversation, and it's a basic one, and, and that is, 
what is the Wassenaar arrangement? Where did it come from? And how does it affect cybersecurity? And so maybe, Stuart, you could begin uh, with a response to that. Sure. I, well, I've, I've gotten to the age now where uh, I can tell uh, the history. I can, I can lay out 50 years of history, and people will believe I was present for all of it. Um, and there is at least 50 years of history here. Uh, uh, when there was a Soviet Union uh, and its technology was backward compared to U.S. and European technology, uh, the U.S. and Europeans got together and came up with um, a list of technology they would not sell to um, uh, communist countries. Uh, and that was, it was under the auspices of something called COCOM or the Coordinating Committee. Uh, after the uh, end of the Soviet Union, the name of the arrangement was changed to the Wassenaar arrangement after a little town in Holland uh, where uh, agreement was reached on this. Uh, and in theory, at least, um, Russia now has joined others in saying, we agree there are certain technologies that should not be sold to certain countries like North Korea or uh, uh, Iran. Uh, and uh, the Countries get together on a regular basis and update a list of technology that requires a license to be sold from their territory to uh, countries outside the, their territory. There is no firm agreement on which countries don't get this stuff or whether a particular product will be firmly prohibited or just carefully licensed but it is the framework for export controls in most of the world. Uh, um, only the U.S. and a few other countries have export control laws. Most of them simply say, I'm, an, I'm a member of this international organization, and I can implement the, uh, uh, the requirements of the international organization uh, on the strength of that without any additional legislative um, uh, justification. So that's the Wassenaar arrangement. We haven't gotten to the question of what they're doing with intrusion software, but we can. Uh, uh, that's the background that tells you uh, where this um, philosophy, where the activities of Wassenaar come from. Okay. And why don't we go on to that second piece, Stuart, which is, and maybe you can take this one again, how how do, how do we get from Wassenaar to controls around intrusion software? So this is, this is a fascinating, and it's almost, uh, there's, a, there's a psychological issue at the heart of this, I think, but uh, the political side of this um, can be tra tracked back to more or less Ara the Arab and some of the activities um, uh, leading up to Arab Spring. Uh, uh, and obviously a lot of people were rooting for the overthrow of uh, authoritarian regimes across the, uh, the Arab world, um, except those regimes were pretty determined not to fall, and many of them have survived. And one of the things that they did did uh, was respond to the idea of a Twitter or a Facebook revolution by uh, buying tools that allowed them to hack their opposition so that they could monitor, spy on, surveil uh, their people um, by breaking into the computers of the, uh, uh, the dissidents and um, extracting information about their contacts, what they were saying, what they were doing, and in many cases uh, arresting them and then uh, confronting them with the uh, uh, the emails that they had sent or the text messages that they had been uh, transmitting. Uh, that became obvious to the rest of the world, and it caused something of a crisis of conscience among uh, uh, Westerners who said, we thought this was liberating technology. Now it turns out that U.S. and European com uh, companies are selling 
what have become tools of oppression to dictators uh, in the Arab world and elsewhere, and we don't like that, and we need to do something about it. Um, a, that was um, the first, and, and I, I think a lot of people said, we would not sell tanks to these governments if the governments were sending the tanks into the street to shoot their own people. Uh, why are we selling um, software that allows them to arrest and torture and punish uh, dissidents? Um, it ought to be treated in the same fashion. So that's the, that's the philosophical um, uh, uh, approach that led people then to say, well, how would we prevent tanks from being sold to uh, oppressive regimes? We would use export licensing. Why don't we use export licensing here? The, these, the, the software that they're using is a kind of weapon. It ought to be treated as a weapon, and we ought to control the sale of it to bad governments. Uh, and that proposal, uh, I'll let Alan take it from here, that proposal came to Wassenaar uh, and the, the assembled uh, governments uh, uh, of advanced economies uh, in 2013 uh, as a fully formed idea. Wow, we're just going to we're just going to uh, fold this new weapon in with the old weapons, and everything will be hunky dory. Yeah, in a sense, this there, this was a moment of, as, as Stuart said, you know, kind of a, a cascade of events uh, combined with concerns about cybersecurity that led to a all hands on deck. What are all the tools that we have, and how can they be brought to this problem? Uh, and so the way that wa the, the Wassenaar arrangement works is that there is an annual cycle of discussion among the 41 member nations that culminates in a plenary session in December of each year. Um, and in the plenary session of 2013, a proposal was placed on the table to control um, intrusion software. Uh, that was then modified, oddly enough, to say, well, we're not going to control the software, but we're going to control the hardware, we're going to control the technology, and we're going to control the software and the knowledge used to make the software. Uh, that would constitute this type of intrusion software that we are concerned that oppressive governments are using against their people. The challenge is they made a classic government error. Um, uh, they took an issue that was relatively discreet, mm -hmm. the sale of kind of these integrated packages of software and hardware and technology and services that were being sold to law enforcement agencies and other government agencies around the world. And they were being used in ways that, that, that people were not comfortable with. And these packages are developed and sold by a handful of companies that everybody knows who they are. But instead of just saying, we're going to control these packages from these companies and other ones like it for these purposes, instead they said, well, well something might slip through the cracks. So instead, we're going to define this really broadly. We're going to define this in ways where we talk about types of hardware and types of software and things that intrusion software can do uh, like change the execution path of software or evade detection so that we can try to make sure that, that we've covered everything at this first, this first blush and, and nothing slips through. The problem is, of course, that ends up covering an enormous amount of software and hardware and, and technology. If, if I can try to broaden that out, because this is part of the regulatory transparency uh, project, uh, many people... Um, are cynical about the private sector's interest. They think that uh, uh, private enterprises are motivated only by profit and will do things that are profitable unless governments tell them not to do it. And I'm not saying that that's wrong, but I do think that people are insufficiently cynical uh, about the, uh, the motivations that govern government conduct. And this is a good example. Uh, government officials are afraid of looking ineffectual, of, of press stories that say, 
this stuff got through, even though you didn't, uh, even though you purported to regulate it, uh, you're hopeless, weak, and uh, ineffective. And in order to avoid that, they cast the widest possible net, uh, and they have enormous confidence in their ability to say, well, of course, we'll uh, uh, we'll shoot them all, and then we'll sort them out. I, I, we'll we'll bring everybody in, and the good people will get licenses and the bad people will be denied licenses, and that way we don't have to make a hard decision at the start. We'll make our hard decisions later when they apply for licenses. And it's worth noting that this is a 41-country arrangement, and you need to gain consensus of every country to make changes. So the idea of going back to incrementally change and adjust this type of a control is bureaucratically overwhelming. And so there was a real pull also to let's just get this done broadly in one package that we can move through. And as Stuart said, we'll sort it out uh, later. So you're saying, Alan, that in a sense, the result you got, at least in part, the, the, the wide net that you described was really born just of a bureaucratic process. And, and, and another way of saying it, it's easier to just cover everything and then work on exceptions later than to go the other way around. Is that is that the right way to think about it? Well, it's, it, it is a good way of thinking about it, and it also points up a difference, uh, and Stuart will jump in on this as well, between U.S. and European export control regimes. In the U.S., uh, when we enact new export controls, we do that through a rulemaking process, uh, and in that rule, we lay out what the controls are on what, what's prohibited, and that's the rule. If the rules say you need a license, you need a license. If the rules say that you can't do or sell something, then you can't sell something. In Europe, the process is a bit different. In Europe, the the process is based on these wide pronouncements, almost of generalized policy, and then these issues are massaged around the edges in the licensing process, where companies come in through longstanding relationships with the regulatory agencies in each of the countries, who know these companies well, and they say, all right, well, what is it that you're doing? Yes, that's not really what we we meant to cover, so either this doesn't really apply to you, don't worry, or here's a general license for everything you're doing, and you can come back to us in two or three years if if you need to. And that's just simply not how the U.S. export control system works. And so you have this tension between, in Europe, the ability to work it out on the back end, and in the U.S., the need to get it right on the front end. And so yeah, that's, that's, I think that's exactly right, and I guess I would only say that uh, that is partly cultural, and it's partly the fact that uh, having large amounts of discretion and the ability to give people quiet um, okays uh, over lunch means that uh, European bureaucrats get taken to lunch a lot more than Americans do. So if, if so, we have 41 nations, they came together, they said this was the way to address intrusion software, um, they went with the wide net. Now, that wasn't automatically, it wasn't self-implementing. In other words, this is a voluntary process. So what has the U.S. government done? What did the U.S. government do when it came home from the meeting in Wassenaar? Did they create a regime that covered the whole, did they take the wide net, or you know, where are we with regard to U.S. export control laws? Well, so this is an interesting story. So unlike typically when something gets uh, decided at Wassenaar or agreed to at Wassenaar, everybody comes back and the U.S. simply publishes a notice, the final rule, that there's a change to, uh, to the dual-use export control regime, and here's the change. In this instance, the negotiators came home and said, hey, look at this provision that we just, uh, you know, we all just agreed to. And and a number of the different agencies within the U.S. government said, whoa, I don't think that's a very good idea. And there was a big debate within the U.S. government uh, that went on uh, for over a year about what to do with this particular agreement, this particular agreed change, which culminated in a compromise as bureaucratic battles are wont to do, Um, a compromise that instead of just simply 
promulgating a notice and a final rule, the Commerce Department, which administers the dual-use export control regime here in the U.S., published a notice of proposed rulemaking. And they published the notice of proposed rulemaking asking for comments, and they wrote the proposed implementing rule basically as if they just followed the exact language of the, uh, of the agreement. They didn't try to get into exceptions and interpretations uh, because they figured it was just better, let's get this out and let's let uh, industry and academia, uh, the research community, the hacking community, let's gather up all the comments and see what they say. And so they got in almost 300 comments and they all said the same thing. This is not a good idea. This will hurt not only the cybersecurity industry, but this will hurt cybersecurity research and development. It will hurt the collaborative efforts that we use to respond to incidents. And it will hurt the ability of each of these parties, the academics, the hackers, the companies, who coordinate with each other to respond to incidents or to find problems or bugs in, uh, in software programs to collaborate at all. So one of, the, one of the problems here, and this is just one of them, but it gives you a feel for why this turned out to be very hard, is that even the tools that government use, governments use to hack citizens, right, the, a set of uh, known vulnerabilities, in particular phones, uh, uh, there are there are open source uh, software packages uh, that uh, hackers or those who follow hackers maintain that make it pretty easy. Uh, and those tools are widely published, uh, and they are used frequently, probably more frequently by defenders than by uh, attackers, because. Any defender who wants to make sure his network can't be easily compromised will wait for the latest edition uh, uh, of these open source hacker tools to be released and will immediately use those tools to test the security of his system. Uh, so if you were going to say, well, that's the one thing I, I for sure don't want you exporting is tools that are designed to find and exploit uh, holes in the security of common hardware and software, uh, you probably end up causing more harm to cybersecurity outside the United States than you would causing harm to governments that are engaged in oppression of their own people. So as, as people began looking at this, they said there is no way to impose restrictions on misuse of this technology without creating an entire set of regulation that has a very substantial impact on our ability to uh, secure uh, foreign uh, uh, systems by using tools that uh, tell us where the vulnerabilities are. And, and so just... Uh, to, to round out sort of the regulatory story, where do the rules stand today, Alan? Did, you said they got 300 comments and that industry and hackers and everyone was aligned that this is a horrible idea for some of the reasons Stuart just articulated. What is the current state of play from a regulatory perspective? Are there regulations mandating that industry get export licenses or where do things stand? So the U.S. government did something relatively unprecedented in its in its participation in Boston in the Boston arrangement with respect to these rules. So after all those comments came in, the Commerce Department withdrew the proposed rulemaking, um, and they went back to their industry uh, uh, advisory committees uh, and said, "Look, we're going to we're going to recanvas for comments and try to better understand this, and then maybe we'll try to put out a new proposed rule." And they got, and based on the additional commentary that they got, uh, they went even further, uh, as well as some encouragement from the Hill, uh, and said, you know what, I think we need to go back to Wassenaar, and I think we need to renegotiate some of these provisions, because there are some fundamental structural problems with these provisions. Um, there are individual problems of the type that Stuart 
mentioned. Many of them trace back to structural problems about the overbreadth of the language, uh, about the imprecision uh, of the language. And so we're going to need to go back, and we're just going to hold off on implementing these rules here in the U.S. until we see what we can do uh, at WASNAR. And so for the last year and a half, close to two years, the U.S. has gone back to these annual cycles, first in 2016 and now in 2017, and endeavored to get all 41 countries to agree to modify uh, these controls, uh, to narrow them back down, to get them focused on what they're supposed to be focused on, uh, to eliminate them if they need to be eliminated, to change them if they need to change them, you know, whatever approach will work. Um, and, in, and the U.S. has held off on promulgating any rule that would implement these, uh, uh, these controls uh, in the meantime. So that's where we sit in the U.S. The issue is that the Euro many of the other countries have not sat still. Many of them have much more automatic regimes where, where whatever comes back out of WASNAR is immediately then in, uh, adopted into their national export control regime. Um, uh, the European Union has gone ahead uh, and implemented uh, the controls on an EU-wide basis. The UK uh, has done its own implementation with uh, interpretive guidance that it's put out on, on blog posts. Other countries around the world that participate in the WASNAR arrangement have implemented and then provided their own interpretive guidance. Uh, and then in some countries in Europe, uh, they've gone ahead and, again, fully reinterpreted the rules through the licensing process, something that came to light through reporting after the hack of um, hacking teams filed. This was a, uh, a company very much of the type that the intrusion software controls were meant to target. Um, they're an Italian-based company, and the emails that were stolen and then pu sub subsequently published showed that hacking team continued to engage with the Italian government after the promulgation or the adoption of this control in Italy and was able to secure a general export license from the Italian government after the imposition of this rule. Saying, yeah, so if you want, if you want to, if whoever you want to sell it to, you just sell it. That's fine. Yeah, <laughs> and something that doesn't exist in the United States, which is we don't need to know who you're selling it to. We don't need to know how you're changing it or modifying it. Here is a you know, an open-ended two-year, three-year general license to go ahead and sell. Hmm. Um, and so the challenge becomes cybersecurity is an overwhelmingly U.S.-based industry. U.S. companies lead the, generally lead the world um, in this technology, uh, have operations in many different countries, sell products from many countries to different countries, engage in research and development in different countries that's then transmitted to different countries, they use security operations centers around the world to maintain 24-hour coverage for their clients. And so even though the U.S. has held off on implementing this particular control, the fact that it's been implemented and it's been implemented in this patchwork of ways by all of these different countries that participate in the WASNAR arrangement causes challenges and problems, first, just to figure out what's covered by who, Second, how do you go about getting the licenses that you need? Um, and then third, based on each country's particular preferences, who can you and you can't sell to? Yeah, so it's adding to the expense of cybersecurity uh, as a practical matter. And even more than the expense is the speed. Right. And this is a concern that industry and academia and hackers and researchers all raise, which is, so we have an event that's broken out. We have a vulnerability that's been discovered. We have a campaign, a defensive campaign that we're looking to launch. So we should all stop, create a, a, a license application, and submit that license application to 41 different countries, wait 30 days to get a license to begin talking to each other about this vulnerability or about this campaign or about this process or technology. What are you talking about? And so... The expense is daunting and real um, and probably more than can be borne by many of the small and even medium-sized companies that engage in this, in this type of defensive cybersecurity activity. But the speed uh, impediments are, are 
equally, if not more important, from the sense of global cyber security. And and so with that in mind, have we, I guess the U.S. In a, is in a slightly awkward posture in that in 2013 they were sitting at the round table in Vassanar and they were saying, yes, 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 sounds great. Then they turn up a year or two later and say, uh, maybe it doesn't sound so good, and we think you all should rethink it as well, meaning you, the other 40 countries around the table. Have any of those other 40 countries begun to backtrack, or are, is the U.S. alone in its view that this needs to be rethought? So there's two pieces to that question. Number one, remember Wassenaar's roots, which is the Soviet Union wants technology that we have and they don't. So the first thing we need to do is we need to make it secret what technology we're talking about and what we're saying about it. So to this day, discussions within Wassenaar are confidential uh, and confined to uh, the people who negotiate the arrangements and uh, each country makes its own decisions about small groups of others that it will bring in. So it's difficult to know exactly who is backing what position, whose position has changed, who is for, who is opposed, because of these tightly controlled information controls on what's even being discussed in Wassenaar. And it's one reason why perhaps the forum in which you talk about tank parts or uh, nuclear munitions or other types of, of technologies is maybe not the right place to talk about open source software and fully proliferated um, uh, technological uh, information uh, or insights. So that's number one. Second is that while this has gone on, the European Union has been engaged in a parallel process um, to update their dual-use export control regime. And they have started, and they have gone even further. They've created a whole new chapter of export controls for cyber tools. And this gives us some insight as to what's going on uh, at Wassenaar, which is that for, for several European constituencies for, hum, for whom human rights is an important plank of foreign policy, these types of controls need not just to be placed on intrusion software, but on a broad range of different types of cyber tools. So there is one direction of this is just the beginning, and there's an effort to control uh, all sorts of different cyber tools where there's an impact or actual or perceived on human rights. The second piece, though, is that in terms of the definitions, they have begun to acknowledge that the definitions and the scope of the language that they started with in the EU controls, which is very similar to the, to the Wassenaar controls, is too broad. And so even the most ardently pro-human rights uh, industry skeptical leaders of the European movement to, uh, to, to secure these export controls are acknowledging and even proposing modifications to the definitions to try to scope down and focus what this intrusion control software is really meant to do. But so far, there's been no agreement out of Wassenaar, either in last year's um, uh, uh, plenary or we're waiting to see for this year's plenary, which will take place in, uh, uh, again in December, to see if there will be any changes at all to the, to the Wassenaar control language uh, that was agreed to in 2013. Yeah, I, but I, I think it is fair to say that a lot of countries seem to be adopting um, what might be called a good guy license export, uh, or export license. Come in... If we know you and you're a good guy, we'll just tell you, yeah, fine, you're, 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 you're cleared to export. Uh, and that does solve a lot of problems. Uh, you can have the, license, the, the, the export uh, controls on your books and not have any really serious impact on your industry if you license all the good guys to just sell what they want. Yeah, it's, it's almost even, it's funny, that's the more formal route. Um, <laughs> the less formal route is the industry comes in, they have this discussion, and government says, oh, we didn't mean you. Right. Mm. This doesn't apply to you. That's rarely written down anywhere, um, but just simply an understanding of 
we are, this country know our domestic industry, we know what you're producing and what you're not. You're not producing anything that's meant to be used in this way, so, so this, doesn't, this doesn't apply to you. And, and by the way, thanks for lunch. <laughs> right, right. It's always over a fancy lunch. Yes. Um, well, the other question I had is, how effective is this regime at actually preventing the, you know, the tools that we don't want the autocrat to have from getting them? Because I would have to assume that if you're an autocrat and you're wanting to repress a goodly portion of your population, you're quite happy to traffic with black market operators that might get you the open source software or combination that you need to crack into your opposition's networks. Is that, am I thinking yeah. about that incorrectly? Or No, you're, you, I think you've got that right. I think that the other problem, and, and this is sort of a regulatory policy issue as well, is uh, this is almost certainly completely ineffective. I, uh, it, it makes the human rights diplomats feel good, uh, but it doesn't actually do much for human rights. Uh, uh, one of the reasons is that uh, for Wassenaar to work, the Wassenaar countries have to have a monopoly on the technology. Um, China is not part of Wassenaar, uh, and they're remarkably good at hacking their own citizens. And they would be glad to sell uh, any government that is friendly to China uh, the tools that they use. Uh, a plus, of course, we've seen a lot of good guy licenses, including to uh, companies that uh, the human rights community would not have ordinarily thought of as good guys. Uh, and so uh, when you go into the Italian government and say, we make $10 million a year selling uh, Italian-made products overseas. We'd like a license to keep doing that. Please don't put us out of business. The Italians tend to think, well, the Chinese will sell it if we don't, so why don't we give them a license? So uh, my sense on this, and I'll ask Alan to uh, comment, is that uh, when all is said and done, this is a regulation that causes considerable harm to legitimate businesses but is not likely to ever accomplish the goals that were originally articulated for it. No, I think that's exactly right. It's so broad that it captures so many different things. It causes such confusion that nobody even knows if they're supposed to go in to ask the question or not. And then for the companies that, that do sell these types of packages, you know, these specially designed packages to law enforcement or other types of government agencies, both they and their recipients customer and the partner agencies in those in their own in the company's own countries that may be co cooperative with those agencies all have an interest in seeing that technology sold and so as the hacking team uh, hack ex showed um, even even uh, you write it as broad as you want it's still not actually controlling that dozen companies with that specially designed type of technology that everyone had in mind when they first envisioned the rule. And there's one last problem that I would identify, which is um, when you give the license, even if you do it on a country-by-country -country basis, you cannot predict what that country is going to do five years from now. Uh, I think most people would have said, um, "Can I, if asked, uh, can we sell these tools to a government like Mexico, which is firmly in the Western orbit and has elected governments uh, and a constitution, et cetera, et cetera? Most people would have said yes. And yet the biggest scandal of the last year has been that the Mexican government purchased uh, tools of this sort uh, uh, and then used them at least in part against journalists and human rights campaigners. Uh, uh, a, a use that could not have been predicted and, and probably couldn't have been stopped with export controls. And that points out the, another fundamental problem, with, particularly with Wassenaar as a tool, because what they promulgate are list-based export controls. They describe things. 
by their own description, they do not get into the intent of the seller and the intent of the buyer. That is for things like criminal investigations, sanctions regimes, other types of, of examinations. Boston Art con con simply focuses itself on the description of things. But the issue here is, of course, as Stuart said, the software, the hardware, the technology in many cases is the same. And even the end user may very well put the software to exactly the type of use that, that the selling company and the selling company's government would want, and then may turn around and use it for another purpose. And there's no distinction made in the Wassenaar arrangement controls because that's not how they're written. Right. But yet the intent is one of the key things that would differentiate the quote-unquote good from the quote-unquote bad. Well, I know we've got about 20 minutes left in our hour conversation, and I did want to make some time for any questions that our listeners might have. So, Devin, are, are we able to open the line for listener questions? Absolutely. Great. Let's go to audience questions. Um, everyone who's listening, in a moment you're going to hear a prompt indicating that the floor mode's been turned on. And after that, if you'd like to request the floor, what you need to do is enter star and then the pound button. Okay, the floor mode is on. Uh, when we get to your request, you'll hear a prompt, and then you can ask your question. Um, we're going to answer all questions in the order that we receive them, as usual. Um, and if you, again, would like to ask a question, all you need to do is hit the star button and then the pound button on your telephone keypad. And while we wait for that first question, I've got one more I'd like to ask for uh, to either Alan or Stuart. Today, who in the U.S. government owns this issue? Who in the executive branch owns whatever the final resolution of regulation is? Is it the Commerce Department? Is it DHS? Is it is it somewhere else? So this is an interesting question. So the Commerce Department owns the regulatory regime over these types of dual-use goods. And so it is the Commerce Department that, would, that maintains the rules and would promulgate the rule changes. But it's the State Department that leads the delegation to Wassenaar um, and is the primary U.S. government spokesperson um, on whatever issues are brought before uh, the arrangement and is responsible for assembling the delegation. Uh, the Departments of Defense, Homeland Security, and others uh, will participate in those delegations, but really at the, uh, but it is at state's discretion to, uh, to put that together. Um, all of that obviously flows back up to the White House, um, and uh, successive National Security Councils have, um, have leaned forward to try to get uh, a, an integrated and strong U.S. government uh, negotiating position. What's interesting is that through the U.S. government, though, there are two communities of people who have direct interest in this. On the one hand, uh, you have the export control community, um, which is steeped in control of nuclear technologies and, and battlefield munitions uh, and sees the world through that particular lens. And then you have the cyber community, within the U.S. government, which sees this as part and parcel of cybersecurity and broader cyber-related policy issues. Um, those entities and perspectives don't always align. Uh, they're not always located in the same place within any particular agency. Um, and so you have an active and spirited debate within the U.S. government, number one, on what should the position be, and then second, how forcefully should we push it? Um, and so, uh, so it just it depends on which piece of the puzzle you're looking at. But because of the different bureaucratic communities that exist, it can be difficult to unify the perspective and then push for as hard and as long as is necessary uh, in order to effectuate the changes that all of the input to the government seems to be saying. Uh, Devin, do we have any questions in the queue? I don't see any questions currently queued up, um, and so I think we're going to get the pleasure of continuing to pepper Stuart uh, and Alan with questions. But uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to make an announcement since we don't currently have any questions. Um, is that okay? Yes. 
Um, so uh, next week is Occupational Licensing Week for the Regulatory Transparency Project. I wanted to let everyone know that both our state and local and antitrust and consumer protection working groups are going to be releasing papers they've written regarding occupational licensing. Uh, the state and local paper takes a deep dive into the perceived tendency of lawmakers to use occupational licensing as a first resort to solve uh, perceived problems. The antitrust paper examines the apparent anti-competitive nature of state licensing boards. Both papers make recommendations for reforms. Additionally, the RTP will release two short videos on occupational licensing uh, for its fourth branch video series. The videos feature numerous experts and commentators, including Senator Mike Lee and Governor Doug Ducey. If you're subscribed to the regproject.org newsletter, or if you follow the RTP on social media, you'll receive advanced access to all of this content prior to a public release next week. Uh, so thanks for letting me make an announcement, and um, don't see any questions currently queued up. Matthew, um, do you have more? Yes, I do. Thanks, Devin. Um, so if I'm a small software company in the U.S., and I'm you know, looking for markets outside the U.S. for my products, um, how am I thinking about this? Am I, am I hedging my bets because the U.S. position on this is in some sort of regulatory limbo as they try and renegotiate at, with, with the uh, Wassenaar group? Am I not going to certain markets around the world? I'm just wondering, as a private you know, as a small software company that maybe doesn't have armies of lobbyists and lawyers, um, how am I approaching this, or how am I hindered by this kind of muddle that we're in? Let me, I, I, Alan and I may have a different view on this. I think that for a small uh, startup in the U.S., this is probably a pretty good outcome. Uh, why do I say that? First, you will not be subject to U.S. export controls until the United States adopts an export control rule that says what the uh, restrictions are going to be. Uh, so the fact that Wassenaar has done this is irrelevant to you as a U.S. Uh, exporter. Um, and um, the U.S. does not show any signs of uh, implementing this, with the one exception that if you have encryption in your product, uh, your encryption export control rule will include some vetting of the human rights and uh, alliance status of the government you might want to sell it to. Um, but putting that aside, you, you're in pretty good shape. But, uh, second, there is a disadvantage to larger companies that have integrated their operations across the world and especially with Europe. Uh, that is to say, if you have people who work up uh, tools or who analyze problems, uh, new vulnerabilities, ask how could this be exploited and how could we stop that, uh, if you do that in Europe, there will be questions about whether you can lawfully ship that information to the United States and to your other research facilities. So it might be a disincentive to expanding your operations abroad. Um, on the other hand, you know, if you look at this from the, uh, uh, the position of this administration, you might say, well, what's not to like? Uh, uh, people will have to keep those jobs in America, and uh, uh, the Europeans have cut off their nose to spite their face. So it may be that, at least for startups, this is not such a bad situation. So that's true, but first, I think the perspective of most startups, or at least many startups in the space is, what's Wassenaar? <laughs> and what do you mean there's export controls on what I'm doing? Um, so there is an educational gap, I think, out there about the fact that this exists and the breadth of its potential reach and what it can potentially do uh, in terms of not just restricting your ability to access markets or sell products, but also to get you into trouble for things you've already done. Um, second is that all works as long as you don't rely on foreign nationals uh, or others, uh, foreign companies, partners, entities for any part of what you're doing. And while your core source code may be coded in-house 
domestically, there's probably some open source component that's come from somewhere. You probably have friends from the community who may not be U.S. citizens or may be citizens of other countries who left those countries because they didn't want to be part of those countries but haven't yet completed the citizenship requirements for the U.S. or for other friendly countries, and they're kind of in a something of a limbo. Or maybe there are people who are really talented uh, who you work with who just are not, are going to fall outside of the of the permitted lists of people that you can share information or technology with. And so there's a bunch of different layers to this that, uh, that will impact you if, let's say, you open an office in another country. Um, uh, even, so, even small startups may you know, open a small office in the EU and a small office in Asia with one person at a shared workstation to do mar marketing or to engage a particular client on a particular project. Um, and if that country is a member of the Wassenaar arrangement, and if they have implemented rules, then you can have implications there. So I think that Stuart is right. So long as the U.S. government continues to hold off on implementing these controls as a rule, as part of U.S. export controls, uh, that covers a lot of a lot of the issues. But there's a lot of other things that are, that have potential impact that are not well understood. Um, particularly when you are dealing with clients um, or offices uh, or individuals from outside the U.S. and from outside you know, certain groups of countries. Yeah, although I, I guess I will say that in 2014 and 15 and 16, we heard fairly often from inside the U.S. government, in the long run, we cannot be isolated, we cannot stand alone, we have to have respect for the views of other countries, and if stays in Wassenaar, we do not want to be uh, defying Wassenaar uh, and acting unilaterally. I don't know about you, Alan, but I haven't heard that in the last year or so. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that that's right. Um, but again, and I think that that's probably likely to be the posture of the U.S. government uh, in, the, in the near term. But if you have an office yeah. in the Netherlands, or You're you stuck. have an office in Berlin, or you have an office um, uh, you know, in another country that has a different perspective on these rules, you're going to get a different message from them. And just the dissonance of that message can cause confusion and yep. cost and delay, let alone the actual imposition of rules uh, on you because you happen to have this office or do development or locate certain product in a particular country. Well, given the, the security implications of not being able to quickly get anti-intrusion software to where it needs to be, and given the daily headlines about breaches at major organizations, including the U.S. government and every major corporation you can think of, why is this issue, at least from my vantage point, somewhere below the radar? You don't hear a lot about Wassenaar. You don't hear a lot about the constraints on industry or the difference of view between the U.S. And, and the other countries that are part of the arrangement. Do you all have a sense of, of, of why this issue is somewhat quiet? I think part of it is the ambiguity of the for the companies that do most cybersecurity work around the world, which is they're the U.S. companies. This is one of the great success stories of the 21st century uh, in terms of uh, U.S. Uh, industrial uh, development. Uh, this is an industry that uh, right now the U.S. totally dominates. I, uh, you know, the closest competitor was Kaspersky, which probably has its own problems now. I, I, and um, I, given that there's ambiguity in the U.S., um, it, it's, it's a little hard to focus people's attention on it because right now the U.S. has not taken a regulatory stance that is going to cause real problems for these uh, uh, companies. Whereas the, the regulatory stance taken in other Wassenaar countries, it's hard to get U.S. Uh, media excited about uh, what European regulatory policy is and its indirect effects on uh, uh, the U.S. economy. Yeah, I think that's right, and, and perhaps it's even indicated by uh, the, the lack of questions from, uh, the, from our discussion today. This is an esoteric issue. This 
is a, an issue that um, if you don't have some background in both cybersecurity and in export control technology, it can take a little time to wrap your head around. And, for, and thus, for the reasons that Stuart mentioned, you know, the time or the effort that, that might need to be invested in order to understand the issue, to understand its impact on your company, uh, to become involved in the dialogue, uh, just makes it such that it's, it, it's very likely to fall off your top 10, top 20, top 50 list of concerns at any given point in the 12 things that you tell either your government affairs or your export control people to do. But, you know, from, from the point of view of the, the regulatory project, it's, it's a great case study, uh, I think, because it, it has many of the elements of regulatory problems that we see everywhere. Uh, it starts, you know, no one starts to write a regulation in order to cripple an industry or to uh, uh, cause paperwork hassles for uh, for people who are engaged in legitimate business. Uh, uh, they always start with a problem uh, it, that everybody recognizes is a problem. It, it, uh, you know, oppressive governments oppressing their own people using tools that they got from uh, uh, Western com uh, companies is a problem. It's it, uh, it's troubling. Um, and if you start there and say, okay, well, we need to regulate, and you don't ask any other questions, you end up opening up a host of problems in public policy uh, that this reg sort of uh, exemplifies, uh, uh, starting with the um, all the incentives in government to write too broadly, to leave discretion with the government, because if you're a government worker, that seems perfectly reasonable, but less so if you're on the other side trying to figure out whose discretion you're appealing to and you're paying for the lunch. Um, a, questions of effectiveness. Uh, you know, once you acknowledge there's a problem, you have to do something about it. Uh, and even if what you do about it doesn't work, it's very hard later to say, let's not do that anymore because... One, people think you're dismissing the problem, uh, and second, you're admitting that you did something stupid, and nobody wants to do either of those things if they work for government. Uh, uh, and the international implications and the uh, failure to consider the international implications uh, in a world that is globally integrated in practically all industries is another area where uh, regulatory policy lags seriously um, and so, I, you know, looking at the problem and kind of figuring out where Wassenaar is going wrong tells us a lot about where other regulations go wrong. Well, and being mindful of the clock, we have about two minutes left, but I'd like you all to gaze into that crystal ball that I know is kept in a secure room at the Steptoe offices near DuPont Circle. And tell me, where does this issue, what does this issue look like two, two or four years from now? Is it the same as where we are? U.S. isn't really playing and the other countries are moving along? Or is, do you anticipate something different happening? Well, I think on the track that we're on right now, we will see uh, continued uh, kind of um, churn uh, at the Wassenaar level, looking at you know, trying to get 41 countries to agree uh, to modify or undo something that they already did. Um, you'll continue to see the U.S. reticence and uh, EU enthusiasm uh, for regulation in this area, which may just simply bring uh, those two regulatory regimes um, uh, m more fully apart. But that's so long as this issue actually maintains some resonance on people's top 10 lists or top 15 lists. There is a certain amount of just bureaucratic fatigue that sets in when uh, there's too much inertia to change an issue, and so we just throw our hands up uh, as communally and just say it's just too hard. What the impact of that would be would be, would be the implementation of these rules in the United States with you know, whatever uh, exceptions or modifications or interpretations it was possible uh, to do, uh, 
because the inertia of the Wassenaar arrangement is that ultimately the rules get implemented. And it's only really going to be the voice of industry and academia, researchers and others together, continually expressing to the U.S. government that, no, that that's not an acceptable outcome um, for us, I think, to see something other than that, uh, than that path be followed. So if you're looking for a case study, this one's going to be around a while. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you both for the discussion. I appreciate your time. And Devin, I'll turn it over to you to close us out. Uh, Sharon Matthews, thanks uh, to, to our speakers on a very thorough and, and wide-ranging discussion. Um, and I think that's what led to very little questions from our audience, which was um, uh, which is terrific. Uh, and thanks, Matthew, for moderating. I want to thank also uh, on, on behalf of the Federal Society's Regulatory Transparency Project and our speakers, uh, our audience, for joining us. I hope that you'll join us again for our next installment of Free Lunch uh, and that you'll also enjoy Occupational Licensing Week next week. Um, but until our next call, so long. On behalf of the Federalist Society's Regulatory Transparency Project, thanks for tuning in to Free Lunch. As always, you can subscribe on iTunes and Google Play to get new episodes of Free Lunch when they're published. Also, visit our website at regproject.org. That's R-E-G project.org. There, we regularly upload content in addition to our podcasts, such as short videos and papers. And you can join the discussion by sharing your story of how regulation has personally affected you. Until next time, remember, there's no such thing as a free lunch. This has been a FedSoc audio production. 